Good to see you today, and uh, we're going to uh, continue our, our series that we started a couple of weeks ago. We, we, we missed being together last week. Uh, hopefully you were able to watch a Facebook worship service. We, we were able to watch our son, uh, Chris, speak, and that was, that's always fun to watch, uh, always a blessing to watch uh, one of our boys uh, preaching on, uh, on Facebook. Um, but we're going to uh, continue with our second message in our series that we started called The Gospel According to Matthew. Uh, you're going to need to ha- hit that clear all. There you go. Uh, the Gospel According to Matthew. And today I'm, I've, I've subtitled the sermon, A Family Scandal. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If, if I had to, if, if you were to give a name or a word or a phrase that would describe Washington, D.C., what would that be? I, I, it would be interesting to hear some of your comments. Um, I, I think for many of us, we probably agree with this one. Permanent scandal. <laughs> right? Permanent scandal. Does that fit? I, I think so. Uh, every time we turn around, somebody in Washington is being accused of something sinister. Uh, uh, mismanaging taxpayer funds. Obstructing justice, lying to Congress, sexual misconduct, quid pro quo, uh, insider trading, collusion with the Russians. You know, sometimes it's real, sometimes the scandal's real, and sometimes it's just political theater that's made up just to harm the opposing party. When was the last time that, that there was not a congressional hearing going on to investigate the latest Washington scandal? I can't remember when there was no hearings uh, to, to try to nail the bad guys. Um, when was the last time our government was actually working to make our lives better <laughs> rather than trying to score political points with their latest accusation? But of course, no matter which party is in power, uh, this tendency to point the finger at your political opponent and make accusations has always existed and unfortunately probably always will. Scandal. Uh, you know, scandal not only exists in politics, but it can be found in other places as well. Uh, it can be found in business, in, in schools, in churches, even in families. F- scandal can be found. Someone in the organization does something illegal, fails to follow policy, uh, is involved in immoral or shameful behavior, and as a result, causes harm to others and brings punishment or shame on themselves. And while we don't like to think about it, scandal, harm, and shame were very much a part of the Christmas story. Yes, I know uh, Christmas has passed, and, uh, and we did that last month, but we're going through the book of Matthew, and right after the genealogy is the Christmas story. Uh, and it wasn't that far uh, back, so it's fresh in our minds. You know, most of the time when we think of Christmas, we think of beautiful things, don't we? Candlelight services, um, decorations, Christmas trees, light displays, presents, family gatherings, even when we think of the nativity, uh, we, we imagine a beautiful young couple settled in clean hay and a clean stable, uh, surrounded by clean shepherds, odorless animals. Uh, on a mild winter evening, there's no birth mess 
there's no birth pain. You know, it's just that beautiful little nativity scene that we have displayed in our house. Often when we think of the Christmas story, we think of bright and clean and happy for all involved. And ultimately, in the end, that's the way it was. It was happy and it was joyful at the end. But the lead up to the Christmas story was anything but bright, clean, and happy. It was filled with scandal. We began a study of the Gospel of according to Matthew last uh, two weeks ago, and, and right after the genealogy, as I said, of Jesus, um, he moves right into, Matthew moves right into the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story. But before we read Matthew's account, let's, let's let Luke remind us of what Joseph is going to be dealing with in Matthew's narrative. Now, here's a good example of why it's a good idea to, uh, to combine the four Gospels together. Uh, because it fills in the gaps uh, that one writer might not mention. Uh, Luke tells part of the Christmas story that Matthew doesn't. So let's refresh ourselves uh, on Luke's part of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, we read of the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary that she would conceive and give birth to a child. His name would be Jesus, the Son of the Most High. He would reign on the throne of David, and his kingdom would never end, the angel Gabriel told her. And when Mary heard this, she wondered how she, a virgin, could possibly conceive a child. But Gabriel straightened it out for her. Gabriel told her that this child would be from the Holy Spirit, and he would be the Son of God. And Mary humbly offered her life as a servant to God, and and then had to deal with the fact that she, an unmarried young Jewish woman, was going to be pregnant with God's child. Now, Mary was also betrothed or pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, not only did, did she have to deal with being pregnant with God's child, but she also had to tell her fiancé that she was pregnant with God's child. And then she had to explain to her parents and her aunts and her uncles and the neighbors and the rabbi and her friends and that busybody lady across the street that she was pregnant. And even if she didn't announce it, even if she didn't tell the the busybody neighbor across the street, uh, which she probably didn't, she may have only told Joseph and maybe her parents at first. Even if she didn't announce it, uh, very soon it would be obvious to everyone what was happening to her, that she was with child. She would cross that bridge later. But first she had to try to explain to Joseph What was happening to her? In the first century in Jewish culture, being engaged to be married was very different than it is today in our American Western culture. In our culture, when a couple gets engaged, they basically just agree with each other that they're going to be married. Let's get married. Okay. Uh, Often there's a ring for the woman that symbolizes the engagement. It's a diamond usually. The man doesn't get a ring. He has to pay for it. Uh, The agreement is just between the man and the woman. It is not legally binding in any way. There's no license. There's no official ceremony. There's the traditional get down on one knee thing that many people would do, but not everybody does that. I gave Jackie her ring at a stoplight in downtown Elizabeth City. (laughs) I, I am such a romantic. 
There's, there's no clergy, there's no justice of the peace involved in an American engagement. Uh, the man and the woman just make a promise, hey, let's get married. Okay, let's get married. In our culture, all it takes to break an engagement is, is for one in the couple to simply change their mind, and it's over. The engagement is off. And it can be for any reason. It could be a change of heart. It could be cold feet. It could be another person came along with a bigger ring. <laughs> it could be I decided to get a dog that's so much cheaper. For any reason, at any time, one or both could say, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. And the engagement is off. Just like that. The reason you can call it off at any time is because you aren't legally bound to each other. In our culture, you are not legally bound to each other until, you, uh, until the official wedding ceremony, uh, where you have a license and you have a legal official like an ordained minister or a justice of the peace. Uh, and once that happens, if you change your mind, uh, if you want to trade for a dog, uh, you, you can't just say, you know what, never mind, never mind. No. Then you have to go through the legal separation by divorce. In the first century, Jewish culture, it was very, very different. When a couple decided that they would be married and became engaged, your engagement was a legally binding agreement, just like our wedding is today. An engaged couple was basically married to each other for all intents and purposes. There, there would be a wedding ceremony later at some point, um, but they were legally and religiously bound to each other when they got engaged. The only difference between an engaged couple and a married couple, uh, one that had gone through the wedding ceremony, was that an engaged couple lived apart from each other, in, probably in their parents' home or in separate homes, uh, and they did not engage in sexual intimacy. That was reserved until the wedding day. Mary was engaged to Joseph, legally bound to him. But they had not had the ceremony, the wedding ceremony yet. They lived apart, and they had not engaged in sexual intimacy. But now she was pregnant. She knew how and why she was pregnant. The angel had told her. But how do you explain that to your fiancé? Can you imagine what's going through Mary's mind as she anticipated this conversation that she was going to have with Joseph? No doubt she rehearsed it over and over and over again. Joseph, uh, I got something to tell you. Um, you you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this, but you just got to believe me because I'm telling you the truth. The other day, an angel of God, you've heard him probably, Gabriel, you've heard of him. Yeah, Gabriel came to me and he told me that I was going to conceive and have a baby. And he told me that this baby would be God's son. Now, it's right here that Matthew picks up the story. So let's read what Matthew says. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Matthew tells us, basically, uh, that whatever Mary told Joseph, he didn't buy it. He didn't buy it. Uh, honestly, would you, would you have bought that story? 
probably not. Probably not. I don't think I would have. Um, there's, there's no way to know what was going through Joseph's mind. Um, but what would go through your mind if your fiancé came and told you that story? This angel came, and I'm going to have a baby, and it's God's baby. Honest. <laughs> now, there may have been, uh, in Joseph's mind, maybe there was two ex- explanations for Mary's pregnancy. Either she was raped by someone, uh, maybe a Roman soldier. I mean, that could really happen uh, in that day with the way the, the government was there. Um, or she had an affair with someone. In uh, in their circumstance, uh, that if you had an affair with someone when you were engaged, that was adultery, as it would be for in in our culture after the wedding ceremony. In that culture, it was adultery if you had an affair while you were engaged. Joseph knew it wasn't his, so those were really the only two options. Uh, and, and if it was a rape, maybe Mary was afraid to tell Joseph. Maybe uh, he was afraid Joseph would get angry and seek revenge, and then he would be in trouble. So to protect Joseph, maybe he thought, maybe that's the reason she told me this crazy story. If it was an an affair, it was her guilt and shame that made her make up this crazy story about the angel. Either way, Joseph felt that he, he could not continue with this relationship, especially if it was an affair, if, he, if she had been unfaithful. At the same time, he cared very much for Mary. Uh, he didn't want her to be dragged before the, the community and be labeled an adulteress and a promiscuous woman or, or, or a crazy woman where everybody would know about the pregnancy and her sin and her story. So Joseph decided that he would divorce her, which is what you had to do, quietly. Now here you could see also the integrity of Joseph. He was hurt. He believed probably that she was cheated. He was cheated on. Yet he did not want to bring harm to Mary. He loved her. Didn't want to ruin the rest of her life. And it's at this point that God knew that the only way this issue was going to be resolved, the only way that Joseph was going to believe Mary's story, is if God told Joseph the same story. He needed to hear it from God. And so Matthew continues. But after he had considered this, the divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary was telling the truth. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and and he gave him the name Jesus. Now probably for all of us, I think it's true for me, it would have taken something like this for me to be convinced that Mary's story was true, wouldn't it? That she wasn't crazy, that she wasn't unfaithful. But now Joseph knows the truth. 
Mary is not crazy. She wasn't unfaithful. No, Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of God's son. And, and then he realized this too. He was chosen, Joseph was chosen by God to be his earthly father. And now they together had to deal with what this circumstance would mean for both of them. They are betrothed, but they are not married officially yet, or with the ceremony yet, and she is pregnant. Now my guess is they didn't try to convince everyone about this angel story, you know, the, the God's message to them, uh, that her child was the son of God, you know, because everybody would have thought they were crazy. They likely just let everybody believe what they would naturally think, that this was Joseph's child. They had not waited until the wedding ceremony to be sexually intimate, and she became pregnant. That's probably what everybody thought. Now, here's something I learned while studying for this message. According to Jewish scholar and Christian pastor Marty Solomon, who is an expert in uh, Jewish law and Jewish first century culture, he said that technically, according to the Torah, according to the Jewish law, it was not sinful for a betrothed couple to engage in sexual intimacy before the official marriage uh, because they were legally committed to each other just as a fully married couple would be. In almost every sense, they were married. So technically, it was not sinful to engage in sexual intimacy, but it was culturally shameful. It was culturally shameful. It was understood among the Jewish community that you just did not engage in sexual intimacy until the wedding day. That's just the way it was done. Everybody uh, understood that. A good Jewish couple would never do that. Uh, they would wait until the wedding day. Technically, they did not sin, but doing this did bring shame on themselves and on their families. And shame is, is not an easy thing to deal with, to live with, is it? Being the cause of a family scandal you know, can't be a pleasant experience for anybody. Walking in a room uh, unexpectedly, catching people talking about you. Seeing neighbors pointing their fingers and whispering to each other. People staring at, when you, at you when you walk in synagogue for worship. That surely was not a pleasant experience for Mary and Joseph during this time. Yes, because they knew the truth, they were willing to endure this scandal, to take the ugly looks, the whispering, the rumors, the attitudes that went on around them. They were willing to endure this difficult time because they knew the blessings that would come to them and to the whole world because of what God was asking them to do. They would bring into the world the promised Messiah, the Son of God. They knew the truth, and that's all that mattered. They had done nothing wrong. They trusted God to get them through this, and they trusted God to make this experience a blessing for them and for all mankind, and surely he did. Mary and Joseph had done nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be guilty, to feel guilty about. Even though others may have believed that they had done something wrong, they knew they had not. But of course, the truth is, 
if this situation had happened to any other couple, uh, if, if any other betrothed couple had found themselves pregnant before the wedding ceremony or before being betrothed to each other, there would have been no doubt what had happened, for sure. You know, there's only been one virgin birth in all of history, and Mary and Joseph, or Mary, gave, gave that birth to the world. There's not been any other. So every other pregnancy that has ever occurred has occurred had, had come about this, the normal way. If any other couple had found themselves in this way, they would have had something to feel guilty about, something to be ashamed of. And in that culture, regardless of what everybody else thought, the couple would have been ashamed of what they had done, not so much in the eyes of others, but in the eyes of God, they would have been ashamed for what they had done. And in first century Jewish culture, the fear of guilt and shame was a tremendous deterrent for engaging in sin. And uh, the desire to honor God with, our, with your behavior was great motivation to do what was right, to live a righteous life. I want to honor God, so I'm going to seek with all my heart to do what is right. And if I don't, I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to feel shame. And as a result, in the Jewish community, out-of-wedlock pregnancies was extremely rare. People understood that sexual immorality was just wrong. And, and, and out of a desire to please God and not experience the pain of guilt and shame, they waited until their wedding day to be sexually intimate. The fear of guilt and shame can be a good thing in our walk with God. It can help us successfully resist the temptation to indulge in the desires of our flesh, the things that our flesh wants that are sinful. The fear of guilt and shame can keep us from doing those things. One of the things that's lacking, I think, in our American culture today, even sometimes amongst Christians, is, is, the, is the fear of guilt and shame. It's just not there. Matthew recorded Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, in, chapters, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And at the very, the very beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount, we read what is often called the Beatitudes. Uh, let's listen to the first four Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 3 through 6. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, you might say that the Beatitudes, we sometimes say the Beatitudes are attitudes that we should have, or you should be these attitudes. That's a good way to remember what they mean, um, that Jesus calls us to have, have these attitudes. In these first four, the first one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Jesus is not talking about poor in the pocketbook or in the bank account. He's talking about our soul. He's talking about um, our, our, our condition and our relationship with God. Understand that our spirit or our soul uh, is poor, Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to recognize that. Blessed if you recognize your soul, your spirit is poor. 
we are all sinners. And no matter what we do, our sin separates us from God. That's the problem in our relationship with God. It's our sin. Jesus is wanting us to recognize that, that you're poor in spirit, that you're a sinner. And if you do, he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, because you are poor in spirit, because you are a sinner, the guilt and shame of that sin that you have committed should cause us to mourn about it. It should upset us when we sin against God. Uh, It should upset us that our sin separates us from God for eternity. Our sin caused it, and we should mourn about it. We should be upset about it. If our sin upsets us, Jesus said, you'll be comforted. You'll be comforted. How? With God's forgiveness and grace. Then he says, blessed are the meek. You know, meekness leads us to understand that, you know, it's not all about us. It's not all about me. Our behavior, good or bad, affects other people. If we're meek, if we, if we think how our lives affects other people's lives, and we choose to do things God's way, Jesus said, you'll inherit the earth. And then he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. God wants us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, God wants us to desire to do what is right so much that we would, we would never do anything that God hates. It would be out of the question because we're hungry and thirsting to do what's right. If we hunger for doing what is right, our life will be filled, Jesus said. What will it be filled with? Peace and joy. Not guilt and shame. You know, 50 or 60 years ago here in America, most people understood these four attitudes. Uh, And they either tried to develop them in their life, or at least they knew they should be if they weren't. Because they understood what God wanted. They, They knew God and they understood what God wanted. They knew they were sinners 50 or 60 years ago. They felt guilt and shame when they did sin because they knew that God was not happy with them. They thought about how their actions would affect others, and they cared about that. They knew what was right, and they knew what was wrong, and they tried to do what was right, or at least they knew they should be trying to do what was right. They felt guilt. They felt shame when they didn't do what was right. Fast forward to today, and all that has changed. You know, far less people in our culture know about God, have any idea who he is or, or the Bible or what the Bible says. And because they don't know God, they don't have a moral compass. They don't have a moral standard to guide them. And so because of that, they simply do whatever they want. They, they do whatever their flesh desires. And much of what our flesh wants is wrong, is sinful. They lie, they cheat, they're selfish, they indulge in sexual immorality, in part because they've never been taught that those things are wrong. They have nothing to guide them. 
Because it's a part of and was suspected in the Christmas story, even though it wasn't true, it was suspected of Mary and Joseph, let's consider the sin of sexual immorality. Today, countless couples are living together unmarried. The rate of -of out-of-wedlock pregnancies is going through the roof. It's growing higher and higher every year. Millions of children in recent years have been born with a mom and a dad who are not also husband and wife. And as a result, many children are raised without the daily influence of a father and a mother who is trying to be both mom and dad. And that's impossible. The failure of people to understand God's design for the family, a mom and a dad who are married, who have children after they're married, who raise their children to love and serve God, the failure to follow God's design for the family is one of the greatest reasons why our culture is literally coming apart at the seams. The breakup of the family, mom and dad married having children. In a sense, people who don't know God kind of have an excuse for their behavior. You know, you're not going to do what's right if you've never been taught what was right. You can't mourn over guilt and shame if if you don't know that you're guilty. If you don't know that you're doing something to be shameful about, you can't experience shame. The problem is, many who do know God are just like those who don't. More and more Christians are living together unmarried. More and more Christian couples are having children out of wedlock. And it's no big deal. In fact, it's celebrated, often with little or no guilt or shame about it at all. Of course, when this happens, like Jesus would do, we we must embrace and love mom and baby and dad. Uh, You know, we've all made mistakes, and we hope people will embrace us when we make a mistake, and so we should do the same for them. That's what Jesus would do. That's what we should do. The cruel way people in this, these circumstances were treated in the past, you know, was in no way Christ-like. Because we all make mistakes, and we all sin, and all sin, all sin, no matter what it is, is covered by the blood of Jesus. But at the same time, we shouldn't celebrate any sin or treat it like it's just another normal way to look at things. When we do, When we do that, what lesson do we teach our children? We teach them that marriage is not important. Waiting until marriage before indulging in sex, that's not necessary. In fact, if you think that, you're old-fashioned. You're a fuddy-dud. You're crazy. There's nothing to feel guilty about, nothing to be ashamed of. Hey, it's not a big deal. That's what we teach our children. And before we're tempted to point our fingers at someone, let's be reminded that this is true for any sinful behavior. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. When we don't take sin seriously, our children and our grandchildren will not take it seriously either. When we don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, after what's right in God's eyes, our children will not hunger and thirst after what is right. When we don't mourn, when we don't mourn, when we tell a lie, 
When we don't mourn, when we don't feel shame, when we have an immoral or hateful thought, when we get too much change back and we keep it, and we don't feel guilty about that, yep, that's their tough luck. You know, not only is God disappointed with us, but we teach our children, hey, sin's not a big deal. Think about this. Mary and Joseph endured a scandal to bring us Jesus. Mary watched her son be tortured on a Roman cross to bring you and me salvation. Jesus gave his life on that cruel cross so that you and I could have the forgiveness of our sins. And all of us need that. Without that, we would be eternally lost, eternally separated from God. God took and takes sin seriously. Enough that he gave his life for it. Don't we need to take it seriously too? We are all sinners. We're all poor in spirit. Let's recognize what that means and, and, and how it affects our relationship with God and mourn about it. Be upset about it. So much so that it causes us to hunger and thirst to do what is right. And when we do, Jesus promises us that we will be filled. Filled not with guilt and shame, but with forgiveness, grace, peace, joy, and with his love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the bravery of Mary and Joseph. Uh, what, a, what a difficult period of time that must have been in their lives. For them to have the, the strange looks from all their friends and family, for the, the whispering or the, the things that they thought, the things that they were accused of doing. Um, but they knew. They knew what was true, and they knew that they had done nothing wrong. Uh, Father, I thank you for their, their bravery to bring us our Savior, to bring us Jesus, and for their, their commitment to raising him to be an adult so that he could start his ministry and, and teach and love and and die for us. Father, um, Mary and Joseph weren't guilty of that sin, but they were guilty of sin. And Jesus died for their sin too. Um, and we're all guilty of sin. We've all fallen short of your glorious standard. Lord, thank you for forgiving us when we do that. And Lord, help us to not, to, to, to not flippantly think about sin in our lives, but to Take it as serious as you did. Lord, you, you, you were so serious about it, you died for us. And so, Lord, when we, when we fall short, even if it's just a little bit, uh, what we might think or the world might think is a little bit, help us to, to feel terrible about that. So much that, that we will commit ourselves to never do that again. And we will ask for your forgiveness. And we'll receive it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Uh, Lord, help us to do what's right so our children can see what's right, and, do, and they'll do that too. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.